when students are conservative, they perceive that their opinions would be unpopular. And so instead of voicing their opinion, they just decide not to. Coming up on Carolina Connection, UNC plans a new school on campus to balance what some see as liberal bias. Good morning, I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. Also this morning, a UNC lab is working to reduce the number of laced drugs on the streets. Governor Cooper bans TikTok on state-owned devices, but students haven't stopped scrolling. UNC graduate Aaron Matson will be the next field hockey coach at age 22. And a class brings storytelling to the School of Information and Library Science. We don't build on the intellectual to care. We build on the intellectual to know. And I really want that heart. From the UNC Husband School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. The UNC Chapel Hill Board of Trustees is planning to create what some are calling a conservative safe space on campus. The board passed a resolution calling to accelerate the development of a school of civic life and leadership. Trustees say the school will help students develop skills for civil discourse and debate, but with board members largely appointed by the state's Republican-controlled legislature, some on campus have questioned the board's methods and motives behind the decision. Sophie Mallinson has more. I'm making the motion that we approve it. Do I have second. a second? I have a second from Trustee Pryor. Last week, the UNC Is Board of Trustees approved a resolution for a school of civic life and leadership. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes unanimously. At the meeting, Chairman David Bullock said the new school would be a place for students to learn democratic competencies, how to intellectually engage with students of differing political ideologies. There are campuses that have the perception that they are grounds for a cancel culture. The school would create a space for free speech, a culture of civil and open inquiry in which we would recognize members of political outgroups as friends to learn from rather than foes to vanquish. The decision was praised by conservative news outlets. Just hours after the board's meeting, the Wall Street Journal published an editorial about the resolution, calling universities echo chambers of woke politics. Bullock then went on Fox News, where he described the school as a remedy to balance out the abundance of progressive views on campus. But in a Monday meeting with faculty, Provost Chris Clemens said the national media has misrepresented the new school. We want to equip our students to open their ears, find their voices. That is not a left issue. That is not a right issue. That is not a liberal issue. That is not a conservative issue. Rather than being about balance, the school is about claiming the vision of the university as a place that serves our students and our state with the most basic necessities for making our society and our democracy work. Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz gave a similar message at the meeting. But not all faculty were convinced by Clemens and the chancellor's descriptions of their vision for the new school. Social medicine professor Sue Estroff. I'm having trouble squaring what both of you have said with our board of trustees chair's celebration of balancing out the faculty. Uh, while I appreciate your reframing it, I have to say as politely and respectfully as I can, I don't buy it. Clemens said talks of the new school originated in a December budget memo he created, but he says he didn't know the trustees would vote on a resolution for it or speak to national media afterward. Jenna Robinson is president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal, a conservative educational nonprofit. She says she was excited when she heard about the school. It's especially, I think, acute 
when students are conservative, they perceive that their opinions would be unpopular. And so instead of voicing their opinion, they just decide not to. This new school can address that by really teaching students how to have those difficult conversations. Trustees cited a need for the school based off this act of students self-censoring on campus. A 2022 study by UNC professors found most liberal UNC students they sampled reported they didn't self-censor, but over half of sampled conservative students reported that they did. But both conservative and liberal students reported wanting more opportunities to engage with opposing viewpoints. But Mimi Chapman, the chair of the faculty, says the creation of this new school to address these issues implies faculty aren't doing their jobs properly that they're not educating students to be able to take different perspectives and to think about different points of view. I think most of us would take strong issue with that. That's sort of offensive to us, I guess, is the best way to put it. It's an insult. It's an insult to our skill as teachers and as educators. Chapman says one of her main concerns about the school, though, is how faculty learned about it. She says national news must have heard about the school before the faculty who are supposed to be involved in the planning process. It's a breach of the fabric of the community to get information like this in this way. While the Board of Trustees can approve such a school, any planning that deals with the curriculum is supposed to fall to the faculty, according to the Faculty Code of University Government. But Chapman says their expertise has repeatedly been disregarded by the board in recent years, such as when they denied tenure to Nicole Hannah-Jones despite faculty recommendations. So that's a breach of trust. And it takes a while to heal when you have these big breaches. So now here's another one, and that becomes a problem. Guskowitz said that faculty will be involved in the school's future development. But Chapman says to rebuild trust, the faculty will need to see a change in the future behavior of the board. In Chapel Hill... I'm Sophie Mallinson. Nearly half of states have banned the social media app TikTok from government-owned devices. That includes North Carolina. Owned by China's ByteDance, the app has raised concerns about how much access it has to users' private information. Sophia Pesurto has more. This is Anna Wong's TikTok feed. She's a sophomore at UNC Chapel Hill who enjoys spending time on the app to watch videos on dogs, nature, traveling, and art. All right, now I'm just scrolling. I do like the algorithm. It likes to bring a lot of things that I experience in day-to-day life to my For You page. And it's usually like a funny take on certain things that I think are super niche, but I guess everybody shares an experience with. According to CNBC, TikTok, a Chinese-owned company, attracts 1 billion users to the platform each month. Users who, like Wong, just spend time watching videos about their interests. Despite the lighthearted nature of the social media app, TikTok has been the subject of recent bans by Congress and NC Governor Roy Cooper. These bans make it so that government-issued phones cannot have or use the app. The bans come from a concern that TikTok on government-issued phones could be a threat to security. Saba Eskandarian is a computer science professor who specializes in cryptography, security, and privacy at UNC. The concern with TikTok in particular is that because it's a kind of a foreign company, people are concerned, and because in China, there isn't maybe as much of a separation between the companies and the government, that that there's a company that has so much data about Americans, this might be a national security problem because th- that data might be accessible to, the, to their government. TikTok, like other social media platforms, collects and stores information on its users with the purpose of improving advertisement recommendations. As Kundarin explained three concerns about what the Chinese government could get. One is the amount of data TikTok has on users and their locations. Another is the possibility that users can be influenced, 
particularly in elections. And last, that the app could exploit other things on your device. If you give permissions to, to the app to look at all your files and you're using like a, a government device, maybe other files you have on the device could, you know, from your employer or something could be visible. This amount and type of data TikTok collects from its users is information users have consented to when agreeing to the terms and conditions of the app. All those like, I agree, I agree, I agree, that's actually what you're agreeing to. Emma Hoyt, a UNC student at Chapel Hill, did not read the terms and conditions when she signed up for TikTok. No, absolutely not. <laughs> they are too long. Show me one person who has read the terms and conditions of anything. Anything. No one does that. They make them long for a reason. <laughs> This one is of a boyfriend and girlfriend, and why her boyfriend's so awesome. <laughs> so I would usually skip this, because I'm not interested in that. Hoyt infrequently uses the app, but enjoys watching workout videos on her feet. I guess I've had more relationship ones than I thought I would have, to be honest. But then again, I just spent a long time talking to my boyfriend, so... According to the Pew Research Center, fewer than 10% of users read the terms and conditions before agreeing. To solve this, Eskandarian explains that better regulations of social media companies could improve the privacy of users, providing an alternative to bans meant to protect user privacy. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sofia Basurta. Black mothers have the highest maternal mortality rate in the U.S., three times higher than white mothers. That's led some black women to hire doulas to support and advocate for them throughout their pregnancies and help them give birth the way they want to. Research shows that doulas can help keep moms safe, but they're just a part of the solution to healthcare inequalities. Brianna Atkinson has more. It's a very cute, winding little, little koala. Jasmine Hensley is getting ready to give birth to her second daughter. Over the past few months, the Concord mom has been buying clothes, diaper bag essentials, and toys. That's been kind of the, the fun part of doing the shopping, but being very like selective with each and every item and getting exactly what I want versus last time I'm like, I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> Hensley's being more selective, not only with the toys she's buying, but also with how she gives birth. The first time, four years ago, she did it the traditional way, in the hospital, surrounded by doctors and with an epidural. Last time, there was a lot of things that I didn't necessarily like consent to, but I assumed I'm like, well, this is just how it goes. This is standard practice. This is, you know, what they have to do. So this time, Hensley and her husband have hired a doula, a professional in the delivery room who can advocate just for her. And as a black woman, Hensley says that's especially important. And so I definitely wanted a doula who looked like me, who understood the disparities when it comes to women of color. Hensley goes in the delivery room facing a troubling statistic. In the United States, black mothers are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Whether we like to acknowledge it or not, there is bias. Hensley's doula, Tashona Winslow, says this bias comes in many forms, including doctors' preconceived notions about black women. Some providers were taught that black and brown bodies experience pain differently than white bodies do. And so if I say, oh, this kind of hurts, then the response that I get might be different than a white birther because there's an assumption that I'm tougher or something along those lines. Part of Winslow's mission is to make every mom feel safe when giving birth. And when moms don't feel that way, she wants to ensure their doctors hear them. 
but there's only so much that an individual doula can change. That's why UNC Chapel Hill and North Carolina A&T have formed a new collaboration to address bias in maternal health care statewide. Dr. Allison Stubbe is part of the team that started the BELIEVE program. She says black women can face disparities in the language used in their health records, the number of visits by lactation nurses, and even pain management. We've found that at UNC, black women have higher pain scores than white women after C-section, but get less pain medicine. Stubbe says the BELIEVE program will develop a curriculum that targets implicit biases about black mothers. Doctors and medical students will use the training with the goal of every mother feeling seen, heard, and valued. The doctor appreciating the contributions of the nurse or the doula or the lactation consultant or the family member who's with the patient supporting them. It's about each member of the team sitting down and making eye contact with the patient and saying what's important to you. Back in Concord, Hensley says working with a doula has made her feel more comfortable and in control of her pregnancy. It's kind of, you know, breaking those like generational curses and breaking those stereotypes and those molds of just, you know, go in and do whatever this white doctor says. And I think that it's really important to the community as a whole to help be that advocate and help turn around what those numbers and those statistics look like. And having that advocate has helped Hensley feel prepared to welcome her baby. In Concord, I'm Brianna Atkinson. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Lorelai Sykes. And I'm Will Christensen. Using street drugs can be dangerous, not only because of what users know is in them, but because of what they aren't aware of. Drugs often are laced with other substances that are undisclosed to the user. A laboratory at UNC, the Street Drug Analysis Lab, has created a way to test anonymous samples of certain drugs. Annie LeBaron has more. So this is what they start out with, and they've got, there's the QR code, and so On ground zero of Caudill Labs, research chemist Erin Tracy pulls out a vial from a small plastic bag. She is prepping a drug sample for analysis. This kit, alongside 19 others, was sent to her lab by mail Monday morning. Tracy begins opening a large green safe. And this is where we keep all of our old samples. So right now, like the program has been in, a, in existence for almost two years and the sample volume has built up. And so right now we, we hang on to the samples. Um, the UNC Drug Analysis Lab is a small team, including chemist Aaron Tracy and community liaison Colin Wasson. The program relies on a machine called a GCMS to analyze anonymous drug samples sent from organizations that serve drug users. The program is grant-funded through the Foundation of Opioid Response Efforts, an independent nonprofit grant-making foundation committed to finding evidence-based solutions for the opioid crisis in America. So some samples are more complex than others, and that's kind of like where the big unknown is, is that a lot of times the expected drug is not the actual drug. According to Tracy, UNC is not special. Most universities have the instrumentation available in their chemistry departments to replicate this program. Both Brown and Brandeis University have forms of drug checking in their communities. She hopes that people can take what they are doing and apply it within their own states. You know, we, we know what's in our alcoholic drinks. We know what's in our food. You know, the FDA exists for a reason to ensure that 
consumers are safe and informed, and really that should exist for drugs as well. The opioid overdose epidemic is undeniable and the amount of people that have died. The UNC lab works primarily with harm reduction groups, which serve to protect the health of people who use drugs as well as their communities. Samples are collected at the point of care and then mailed back to UNC for analysis. Participants can look at their results online via QR code. Unfortunately, due to the long turnaround time, most people have already taken these substances before getting the results back. Community liaison Colin Wasson elaborates on the communication process. What we do typically with all programs, regardless of what kind of program it is, we send them an initial like startup kit with five free kits and a mailer. So they can basically just collect five samples in the little kits and send those back in the mailer that we provide at no cost. What Wasson makes clear is that this program does not accept samples from people trying to get their individual drugs checked. Additionally, they often charge out-of-state harm reduction groups $20 per analysis. For instance, we had a nightclub in New York reach out to us uh, over the weekend that had had a customer overdose on a specific drug. And they had a sample of this drug and they wanted to send it to us. So I just said, hey, these are some people who are right by you in Brooklyn who can test those drugs for free and a whole lot faster. For now, the Chapel Hill team remains small. However, there is hope for expansion in the future. For, for our little tiny team of, you know, four or five people to do the volume of testing that we do, it's, it's definitely a, a labor of love. According to Wasson, the team has discussed pursuing more funding. They would also consider hiring another chemist as well as someone to handle the business side of things. In Chapel Hill, I'm Annie LeBaron. Storytelling is a growing part of the curriculum at UNC. There are storytelling classes in departments where you might expect them, like English and journalism, but students in other disciplines are also learning the value of telling a good story. Denise Stroud reports on one such class in the School of Information and Library Science. Hey, want to hear a story? If you just felt your curiosity stir just a bit, well, that's the power of storytelling. It's like a parent reading to a child or someone telling fireside folktales. Storytelling is at the heart of what it means to be human. And today, I'm your storyteller. Did you ever wonder? In academia, the focus is often cerebral, less emotional. In the School of Information and Library Science, students are taught to be dispassionate analysts and truth tellers. Students often miss the chance to become better storytellers. The Ashanti people of West Africa. But SIL's professor, Brian Sturm, is working to change that by offering a class in storytelling. The students who have taken the course, me included, were often profoundly changed by the experience. Sturm says, making information scientists and librarians better storytellers is important. We build on an emotional connection in order to care. Um, we don't build on the intellectual to care. We build on the intellectual to know. Right, um, And I really want that heart back in the academic world. He adds that cultural competence is also a goal. My hope is that the, the class and the stories that they learn and the, the communication skills that they learn are a way to um, begin to help our students learn to communicate across cultures. Justin Pfeiffer is a first-year graduate student 
working towards a PhD in human interaction with AI. There's a lot of focus in the SILS courses on the transition from um, library and library technology and that moving to more IT stuff. And I feel like storytelling takes another step back even um, to before there was so much information written down. He added that the ability to connect, not just intellectually, but emotionally, was a critical skill set. I think that it's, it doesn't just have value, it's a necessity moving forward. And what else will he add to his professional persona going forward? Would be emotional vulnerability in your professional work and allowing yourself to just be real. Ikra Javid is also a first-year graduate student in information science. Sometimes I think that the joy of learning is being sucked out. And for me, like, that's very sad to, to feel and see. And so I feel like it was restorative in the sense of it, it reminded me the, the delight in learning and growth. She sees the course as filling in a vital piece that often gets lost. I feel like this course now in my toolbox affects the way I walk in the world. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Sturm is also the Associate Dean of Academics. He wants to create space for students to learn emotional impact and human connection skills in other SILS courses as well. In Chapel Hill, I'm Denise Stroud. The Blue Bloods rivalry is back. Tonight, the Tar Heels will head to Cameron Indoor Stadium to take on Duke in the first showdown since last year's legendary Final Four game. Here to talk rivalry is Carolina Connection's own Christian Phillips. Christian, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it, Will. Thank you for having me. So this UN team went to the national championship last year, right? Like four of the five starters from the team are back, all under the same direction of head coach Hubert Davis. Um, but the team, I mean, I'd say hasn't been as dominant as I think a, a lot of people were expecting. Um, they're 15-7 and seven and 7-4 seven and four in conference play, uh, following a loss to Pitt on Wednesday. What's going on with the Tar Heels? Do you think that that track record is going to affect this, this rivalry game? I don't think it will at all. Um, I don't think that the surprisingly lackluster season that these two teams are having will in any way affect this game. This is the rivalry in college basketball. None others come close to as intense as this series gets and how close it has been throughout its history. There's no telling how the game will go later today. Yeah, and this is the um, first rivalry match for uh, Duke's new head coach, uh, John Shire. How do you think Coach K's uh, successor is going to hold up tonight? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, but look, Duke is also not having the best year. Uh, but that's nothing new. There's always going to be some growing pains when you have a new coach, especially when you're trying to follow one that's been here for 42 years. This is John Shire's 10th year at Duke. But even with all the time that he's had to learn from Coach K, it's a whole other enterprise when you have to lead the team rather than assist it. It'll be really interesting to see how he's adjusted to the role, especially in a game of this magnitude. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, it seemed to me that uh, the team's ready to go, at least on our side. Um, at a press conference yesterday, senior forward Armando Baycott said that you know, despite the atmosphere, he's just focused on getting a win here. Going over there, I know, like, and them coming here, too, is one of those games where it's, like, the biggest stages. So it's really, like, no room to be nervous. You just got to go out there and just really just show all the things you worked on and just play good. And I think us and Duke right now, we both at a point in our season where we both just hungry to get a win. And, I mean, for both of us, on both sides, it'll be a huge win for us. So, I mean, it's going to be a bloodbath, I think. Be sure to tune in at 5 o'clock tonight for our coverage of the UNC-Duke game right here on 97.9 The Hill. Christian, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Earlier this week, UNC announced that former Carolina field hockey player and four-time national champion Aaron Matson will replace Karen Shelton as head coach of the field hockey program. Matson is just 22 years old and has no prior coaching experience. 
Here to talk about Matson's career as a player and future with the program is the Daily Tar Heels assistant sports editor, Shelby Swanson. Shelby, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Shelby, can you tell me a little bit about Matson's career like as a player? Yeah, well, I mean, we could really be here all day if we want to get into all the facts and figures, but um, she is outside of her career in North Carolina, a member of the U.S. national team and one of the youngest players on that national team at that. So actually a little bit of a fun fact is one of the coaches on the staff, um, Caitlin Van Sickle, also known as Poppy, also a former player. She played with Aaron Matson on that national team. So Matson has a lot of international experience. She's also within you know, college field hockey, arguably the best field hockey player of all time. She's the ACC's all-time leader in goals and points. And like you said, captured four national titles over a span of five seasons and also has five ACC titles as a forward for UNC. And she's been recognized nationally for just her dominance in the sport as a three-time Honda Sport Award winner um, in field hockey. So how... That that dominance that you said, like as a player, how how well do you think that will translate into um, you know actual coaching experience? Well, I think it'll translate really well. I know a lot of people were kind of shocked at Matson being picked to lead the program, but really, I mean, how many other people know the ins and outs of sports of the sport like her? I mean, she's just such a dominant player, and you know, in her press conference earlier this week was just talking about how. She's somebody who can really get on the field with players and show them, hey, here's how you do this. I'd rather you make this pass and compete alongside them and just just really take a hands-on approach. And that's something that a lot of other people can't do necessarily to the level that she can. And she's also somebody who she was a three-time captain of the team. So she's been in leadership positions um, within the program already as her time as a player. Um, she also you know, academically, she had a minor in coaching education while at UNC, so really does have a lot of experience to draw upon, um, given the fact that she has never, you know, to my knowledge, coached a collegiate program. I mean, she hasn't coached a collegiate program before. Um, So despite taking that huge jump to head coach, she has just a wealth of knowledge from her time playing and, you know, also from her experience, again, that coaching education in the classroom. Um, So yeah, I think she's She's really ready, and she did kind of express that confidence in the press conference earlier this week, saying that she knows she's a good fit for the job, you know, despite what people say. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do. Shelby, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was the Daily Tar Heels assistant sports editor, Shelby Swanson. Finally this week, a group known as Hugs and Pups can often be seen on campus providing students with stress relief in the form of dog pets and mom hugs. But this winter, the group has to put a pause on the hugs, according to co-founder Kathy Emmerich. We have an infectious disease consultant on campus, and we decided together that it's not a great time to go around hugging people. We can't bear the thought of not hugging people when we're sitting in Blue's Corner with our dogs. So instead of hugs, the group is hosting various events. Last week, they decorated a table with cards and stickers. Their prompt to students? Write a letter to someone who makes you happy. This is our way of staying connected to the students, even when we can't hug them, because we hate not hugging them. So over several hours, students crowded around a table, folded up their envelopes, and plopped them in a bin for the moms to sign. Thank you. Do I stamp it? Or do you stamp it? We'll stamp it. Our campus are off. Let's see who students wrote to. My name is Sydney Odom. I'm a sophomore, and I wrote to my aunt, my sister, and my parents, because they make me feel more at home while I'm away from my real home. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm Ellie Koenig. Yeah, I'm a senior and I was really lucky I came across this. It's actually my long distance boyfriend's denies one month anniversary. And so I'm really happy I'm gonna send this card today. So my name is Haley Mendenhall. I'm a senior and I'm actually a transfer student. And before I came to UNC, I was a nanny for five kids. So I just wrote them a card to tell them I love them and I miss them. My name is Felice Strong. I'm a freshman at UNC and I just wrote to my friend from Duke. Um, I'm from Miami and so there's not a lot of Miami people here and she's like my best friend so she's just like a ball of energy and I really really miss her and now we're just really happy that we're like a bus ride away. I'm Brian Lee, fourth year and who I'm writing to is a, towards a whole department which is the Carolina Covenant. They have helped me with the financial side of college tuition and I'm forever grateful to them. <laughs> my name is Anna Carla Bianca, I'm an exchange student from Italy and I just sent a letter to my grandma. I miss her a lot. She makes me happy because she's super fun and she's always caring. So I think this is gonna make her happy. My name is Julia Folks. I'm a junior. I just transferred here so I'm like brand new and I wrote a letter to my dad because he's going through a hard time right now and I see him all the time but I figured this would help cheer him up. He's one of my best friends. He's always been there for me. He's always been really supportive of me and my sisters. He's always just been someone I can go to and so he's a he's a great dad. How many letters do you think you have over here? Um, let me see. That's probably like eight. That's at least we have at least fifty. And the moms will be back weekly with new events, spreading smiles, one pet, or now one letter at a time. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Charisma Daniel. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lorelai Sykes. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.